Section 4 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. Chapter 3. Arrangement and Economy of the Kitchen. Part 1. 62. The distribution of a kitchen, says Count Rumford, the celebrated philosopher and physician, who wrote so learnedly on all subjects connected with domestic economy and architecture, must always depend so much on local circumstances, that general rules are hardly be given respecting it. The principles, however, on which this distribution ought in all cases, to be made, are simply and easy to be understood, and, in his estimation, these resolve themselves into symmetry of proportion in the building and convenience to the cook. The requisites of a good kitchen, however, demand something more special than is here pointed out. It must be remembered that it is the great laboratory of every household and that much of the weal or woe, as far as regards bodily health, depends upon the nature of the preparations concocted within its walls. A good kitchen, therefore, should be erected with a view to the following particulars. 1. Convenience of distribution in its parts, with largeness of dimension. 2. Excellence of light, height, of ceiling, and good ventilation. 3. Easiness of access, without passing through the house. 4. Sufficiently remote from the principal apartments of the house, that the members, visitors, or guests of the family may not perceive the odour incident to cooking, or hear the noise of culinary operations. 5 plenty of fuel and water, which, with the scullery, pantry, and storeroom, should be so near it, as to offer the smallest possible trouble in reaching them. The kitchens of the Middle Ages in England are said to have been constructed after the fashion of those of the Romans. They were generally octagonal, with several fireplaces, but no chimneys neither was there any wood admitted into the building. The accompanying cut, Fig 1, represents the turret, which was erected on the top of the conical roof of the kitchen at Glastonbury Abbey, and which was perforated with holes to allow the smoke of the fire, as well as the steam from cooking, to escape. Some kitchens had funnels or vents, below the eaves to let out the steam, which was sometimes considerable, as the Anglo-Saxons used their meat chiefly in a boiled state. From this circumstance, some of their large kitchens had four ranges, comprising a boiling place for small boiled meats and a boiling house for the great boiler. In private houses, the culinary arrangements were no doubt different. The Ducange mentions a little kitchen with a chamber, 
even in a solarium, or upper floor. 63. The simplicity of the primitive ages has frequently been an object of poetical admiration, and it delights the imagination to picture men living upon such fruits as spring spontaneously from the earth, and desiring no other beverages to slack their thirst, but such as fountains and rivers supply. Thus we are told that the ancient inhabitants of Argos lived principally on pears, that the Arcadians reveled in acorns, and the Athenians in figs. This, of course, was in the Golden Age, before ploughing began, and when mankind enjoyed all kinds of plenty without having to earn their bread by the sweat of their brow. This delightful period, however, could not last for ever, and the earth became barren, and continued unfruitful till sirs came and taught the art of sowing, with several other useful inventions. The first whom she taught to till the ground was Triptolemus, who communicated his instructions to his countrymen, the Athenians. Thence the art was carried into Achaea, and thence into Arcadia. Barley was the first grain that was used, and the invention of bread-making is ascribed to Pan. The use of fire as an instrument of cookery must have been coval with this invention of bread, which, being the most necessary of all kinds of food, was frequently used in a sense so comprehensive as to include both meat and drink. It was, by the Greeks, baked under the ashes. 64. In the primary ages it was deemed unlawful to eat flesh, and when mankind began to depart from their primitive habits, the flesh of swine was the first that was eaten. For several ages it was pronounced unlawful to slaughter oxen, from an estimate of their great value in assisting men to cultivate the ground, nor was it usual to kill young animals, from a sentiment which considered it cruel to take away the life of those that had scarcely tasted the joys of existence. At this period no cooks were kept, and we know from Homer that his ancient heroes prepared and dressed their victuals with their own hands. Ulysses, for example, we are told, like a modern charwoman, excelled at lighting a fire, whilst Achilles was an adept at turning a spit. Subsequently, heralds employed in civil and military affairs filled the office of cooks, and managed marriage feasts, but this, no doubt, was after mankind had advanced in the art of living, a step further than roasting, which in all places was the ancient manner of dressing meat. 65. The age of roasting we may consider as that in which the use of metals would be introduced as adjuncts to the culinary art, and amongst these, iron, the most useful of them all, would necessarily take a prominent place. This metal is easily oxidized, 
but to bring it to a state of fusibility, it requires a most intense heat. Of all the metals, it is the widest diffused and most abundant, and few stones or mineral bodies are without an, an admixture of it. It possesses the valuable property of being welded by hammering, and hence its adaption to the numerous purposes of civilized life. Metallic grains of iron have been found in strawberries, and a twelfth of the weight of the wood of dried oak is said to consist of this metal. Blood owes its color of redness to the quantity of iron it contains, and rain and snow are seldom perfectly free from it. In the arts it is employed in three states, as cast iron, wrought iron, and steel. In each of these it largely enters into the domestic economy, and stoves, grates, and general implements of cookery are usually composed of it. In antiquity its employment was, comparatively speaking, equally universal. The excavations made at Pompeii have proved this. The accompanying cuts present, as with specimens of stoves, both ancient and modern. Fig, too, is the remains of a kitchen stove found in the house of Panza at Pompeii, and would seem, in its perfect state, not to have been materially different from such as are in use at the present day. Fig 3 is a self-acting, simple open range in modern use, and may be had of two qualities ranging according to their dimensions, from £3.10 shillings and £3.18 shillings, respectfully up to £4.10 shillings and £7.05 shillings. They are completely fitted up with oven, boiler, sliding cheek, wrought iron bars, revolving shelves, and brass tap. Fig 4 is called the improved Leamington Kitchener, and is said to surpass any other range in use, for easy cooking by one fire. It has a hot plate which is well calculated for an ironing stove, and on which as many vessels as will stand upon it may be kept boiling without being either soiled or injured. Besides, it has a perfectly ventilated and spacious wrought iron roaster, with movable shelves, draw-out stand, double dripping pan, and meat stand. The roaster can be converted into an oven by closing the valves, when bread and pastry can be baked in it in a superior manner. It also has a large iron boiler with brass tap and steam pipe, round and square gridirons for chops and steaks, ash pan, open fire for roasting, and a set of ornamental coverings with plate warmer attached. It took a first-class prize and medal in the Great Exhibition of 1851, and was also exhibited with all the recent improvements, at the Dublin Exhibition in 1853. Fig 5 is another kitchener, adapted for large families. It has, on one side, a large ventilated oven, 
and on the other the fire and roaster. The hot plate is over all, and there is a back boiler made of wrought iron with brass tap and steam pipe. In other respects it resembles Fig 4, with which it possesses similar advantages of construction. Either may be had at varying prices, according to size, from £5.15 shillings up to £23.10 shillings. They are supplied by Messrs. Richard and John Slack, 336 Strand, London. 66. From kitchen ranges to the implements used in cookery is but a step. With these, every kitchen should be well supplied, otherwise the cook must not be expected to perform her office in a satisfactory manner. Of the culinary utensils of the ancients, our knowledge is very limited, but as the art of living in every civilized country is pretty much the same, the instruments for cooking must, in a great degree, bear a striking resemblance to each other. On referring to classical antiquities, we find mention, among household utensils, leather bags, baskets constructed of twigs, reeds and rushes, boxes, basins and bellows, bread moulds, brooms and brushes, cauldrons, colanders, cisterns and chafing dishes, cheese rasps, knives and ovens of the Dutch kind, funnels and frying pans, hand mills, soup ladles, milk pails, and oil jars, presses, scales, and sieves, spits of different sizes, but some of them large enough to roast an ox, spoons, fire-tongs, trays, trenches, and drinking vessels, with others for carrying food, preserving milk, and holding cheese. This enumeration, if it does nothing else, will, to some extent, indicate the state of the simpler kinds of mechanical arts among the ancients. In so far as regards the shape and construction of many of the kitchen utensils enumerated above, they bore a great resemblance to our own. This will be seen by the accompanying cuts. Fig 6 is an ancient stock-pot in bronze, which seems to have been made to hang over the fire, and was found in the buried city of Pompeii. Fig 7 is one of the modern make, and may be obtained either of copper or wrought iron, tinned inside. Fig 8 is another of antiquity, with a large ladle and colander, with holes attached. It is taken from the column of Trajan. The modern ones can be obtained at all prices, according to size, from thirteen shillings and sixpence up to one pound one shilling. 67. In the manufacture of these utensils, bronze metal seems to have been much in favour with the ancients. It was chosen not only for their domestic vessels, but it was also much used for their public sculptures and medals. 
It is a compound composed of from six to twelve parts of tin to one hundred of copper. It gives its name to figures and all pieces of sculpture made of it. Brass was another favorite metal, which is composed of copper and zinc. It is more fusible than copper, and not so apt to tarnish. In a pure state it is not malleable, unless when hot, and after it has been melted twice it will not bear the hammer. To render it capable of being wrought, it requires seven pound of lead to be put to one hundred weight of its own material. The Corinthian brass of antiquity was a mixture of silver, gold, and copper, a fine kind of brass supposed to be made by the cementation of copper plates with calamine, is, in Germany, hammered out into leaves, and is called Dutch metal in this country. It is employed in the same way as gold leaf, brass as much used for watchworks, as well as for wire. 68. The braziers, ladles, stewpans, saucepans, gridirons, and colanders of antiquity might generally pass for those of the English manufacturer of the present day. In so far as shape is concerned, in proof of this we have placed together the following similar articles of ancient and modern pattern, in order that the reader may, at a single view, see wherein any difference that is between them consists. Figs nine and ten are flat sauce or sauté pans, the ancient one being fluted in the handle, and having at the end a ram's head. Fig eleven and twelve are colanders, the handle of the ancient one being adorned, in the original, with carved representations of a cornucopia, a satire, a goat, pigs, and other animals. Any display of taste in the adornment of such utensils might seem to be useless, but when we remember how much more natural it is for us all to be careful of the beautiful and costly than of the plain and cheap, it may even become a question, in the economy of a kitchen, whether it would not, in the long run, be cheaper to have articles which displayed some tasteful ingenuity in their manufacture, than such as are so perfectly plain as to have not attractions whatever beyond their mere suitableness to the purpose for which they are made. Figs thirteen and fourteen are saucepans, the ancient one being of bronze, originally copied from the cabinet of Monsieur Alabe Charlotte and engraved in the antiquities of Montfaucon. Figs 15 and 17 are gridirons, and 16 and 18 dripping pans. In all these utensils the resemblance between such as were in use 2,000 years ago, and those in use at the present day, is strikingly manifest. 69. Some of the ancient utensils represented in the above cuts, are copied from those found amid the ruins of Herculaneum and Pompeii. These Roman cities were, in the first century, 
buried beneath the lava of an eruption of Vesuvius, and continued to be lost to the world till the beginning of the last century, when a peasant, in digging for a well, gradually discovered a small temple with some statues. Little notice, however, was taken of this circumstance till 1736, when the king of Naples, desiring to erect a palace at Portici, caused extensive excavations to be made. When the city of Herculaneum was slowly unfolded to view, Pompeii was discovered about 1750, and being easier cleared from the lava in which it had so long been entombed, disclosed itself as it existed immediately before the catastrophe which overwhelmed it. Nearly two thousand years ago, it presented to the modern world the perfect picture of the form and structure of an ancient Roman city, the interior of its habitations, shops, baths, theatres, and temples were all disclosed, with many of the implements used by the workmen in their various trades, and the materials on which they were employed, when the doomed city was covered with the Labian stream. 70. Amongst the most essential requirements of the kitchen are scales or weighing machines for family use. These are found to have existed among the ancients, and must, at a very early age, have been both publicly and privately employed for the regulation of quantities. The modern English weights were adjusted by the 27th chapter of Magna Carta, or the great charter forced by the barons from King John at Runnymede in Surrey. Therein it is declared that the weights all over England shall be the same, although for different commodities there were two different kinds, Troy and Avril de Poo. The origin of both is taken from a grain of wheat gathered in the middle of an ear. The standard of measures was originally kept at Winchester, and by a law of King Edgar was ordained to be observed throughout the kingdom. Fig 19 is an ancient pair of common scales, with two basins and a movable weight, which is made in the form of a head, covered with pileus, because Mercury had the weights and measures under his superintendence. It is engraved on a stone in the gallery of Florence, Fig 20, represents a modern weighing machine of great convenience, and generally in use in those establishments where a great deal of cooking is carried on. 71. Accompanying the scales, all weighing machines, there should be spice boxes, and sugar and biscuit canisters of either white or Japan tin. The covers of these should fit tightly, in order to exclude the air, and if necessary be lettered in front, to distinguish them. The white metal of which they are usually composed loses its colour when exposed to the air, but undergoes no further change. It enters largely into the composition of culinary utensils, many of them being entirely composed of tinned sheet iron. The inside of copper and iron vessels also 
being usually what is called tinned. This art consists of covering any metal with a thin coating of tin, and it requires the metal to be covered, to be perfectly clean and free from rust, and also that the tin itself be purely metallic and entirely cleared from all ashes or refuse. Copper boilers, saucepans, and other kitchen utensils are tinned after they are manufactured, by being first made hot and the tin rubbed on with resin. In this process, nothing ought to be used but pure grain tin. Lead, however, is sometimes mixed with that metal, not only to make it lie more easily, but to adulterate it, a pernicious practice which in every article connected with the cooking and preparation of food cannot be too severely reprobated. The following list, supplied by Messrs. Richard and John Slack, 336 Strand, will show the articles required for the kitchen of a family in the middle class of life, although it does not contain all the things that may be deemed necessary for some families and may contain more than are required for others. As Messrs. Slack, themselves, however, publish a useful illustrated catalogue, which may be had at their establishment gratis, and which it will be found advantageous to consult by those about to furnish, it supersedes the necessity of our enlarging that which we give. One tea kettle, six shillings and sixpence. One toasting fork, one shilling. One bread grater, one shilling. One pair of brass candlesticks, three shillings and sixpence. One teapot and tray, six shillings and sixpence. One bottle jack, nine shillings and sixpence. Six spoons, one shilling and sixpence. Two candlesticks, two shillings and sixpence, one candle box, one shilling and fourpence, six knives and forks, five shillings and threepence, two sets of skewers, one shilling, one meat chopper, one shilling and ninepence, one cinder sifter, one shilling and threepence, one coffee pot, two shilling and threepence, one colander, one shilling and sixpence, three block tin saucepans, five shillings and ninepence, five iron saucepans, twelve shillings, one dito and steamer, six shillings and sixpence, one large boiling pot, ten shillings, four iron stew pans, eight shillings and ninepence, one dripping pan and stand, six shillings and sixpence, one dustpan, one shilling, one fish and egg slice, one shilling and ninepence, two fish kettles, ten shillings, one flower box, one shilling, three flat irons, three shillings and sixpence, two frying pans, four shillings, one gridiron, two shillings, one mustard pot, one shilling, one salt cellar, eightpence, one pepper box, sixpence, one pair of bellows, two shillings, three jelly moulds, eight shillings, one plate basket, five shillings and sixpence, one cheese toaster, 
one shilling and tenpence, one coal shovel, two shilling and sixpence, one wood meat screen, thirty shillings, the set, eight pound, eleven shillings and one penny. Seventy-two, as not only health but life, may be said to depend on the cleanliness of culinary utensils. Great attention must be paid to their condition generally, but more especially to that of the saucepans, stewpans, and boilers. Inside they should be kept perfectly clean, and where an open fire is used, the outside as clean as possible. With a Leamington range, saucepans, stews, etc., can be kept entirely free from smoke and soot on the outside, which is an immense saving of labour to the cook or scullery maid. Care should be taken that the lids fit tight and close, so that the soups or gravies may not be suffered to waste by evaporation. They should be made to keep the steam in and the smoke out, and should always be bright on the upper rim where they do not immediately come in contact with the fire. Soup pots and kettles should be washed immediately after being used and dried before the fire, and they should be kept in a dry place, in order that they may escape the deteriorating influence of rust and thereby be destroyed. Copper utensils should never be used in the kitchen unless tinned and the utmost care should be taken not to let the tin be rubbed off. If by chance this should occur, have it replaced before the vessel is again brought into use. Neither soup nor gravy should, at any time, be suffered to remain in them longer than is absolutely necessary, as any fat or acid that is in them may affect the metal so as to impregnate with poison what is intended to be eaten. Stone and earthenware vessels should be provided for soups and gravies not intended for immediate use, and also plenty of common dishes for the larder, that the table set may not be used for such purposes. It is the nature of vegetables soon to turn sour when they are apt to corrode glazed red ware and even metals, and frequently, thereby, to become impregnated with poisonous particles. The vinegar, also in pickles, by its acidity, does the same. Consideration, therefore, should be given to these facts, and great care also taken that all sieves, jelly-bags, and tapes for collared articles be well scalded and kept dry or they will impart an unpleasant flavour when next used. To all these directions the cook should pay great attention, nor should they, by any means, be neglected by the mistress of the household, who ought to remember that cleanliness in the kitchen gives health and happiness to home, whilst economy will immeasurably assist in preserving them. 73. Without fuel, a kitchen might be pronounced to be of little use. Therefore, to discover and invent materials for supplying us with the means of domestic heat and comfort has exercised the ingenuity of man. 
Those now known have been divided into five classes, the first comprehending the fluid inflammable bodies, the second peat or turf, the third charcoal of wood, the fourth pit-coal charred, and the fifth wood or pit-coal in a crude state, with the capacity of yielding a copious and bright flame. The first may be said seldom to be employed for the purpose of cookery, but peat, especially amongst rural populations, has, in all ages, been regarded as an excellent fuel. It is one of the most important productions of an alluvial soil, and belongs to the vegetable rather than the mineral kingdom. It may be described as composed of wet, spongy black earth, held together by decayed vegetables. Formerly it covered extensive tracts in England, but has greatly disappeared before the genius of agricultural improvement. Charcoal is a kind of artificial coal, used principally where a strong and clear fire is desired. It is a black, brittle, insoluble, inodorous, tasteless substance, and, when newly made, possesses the remarkable property of absorbing certain quantities of the different gases. Its dust, when used as a polishing powder, gives great brilliancy to metals. It consists of wood half burned, and is manufactured by cutting pieces of timber into nearly the same size, then disposing them in heaps, and covering them with earth, so as to prevent communication with the air, except when necessary to make them burn. When they have been sufficiently charred, the fire is extinguished by stopping the vents through which the air is admitted. Of coal there are various species, as pit, cum, slate, cannel, kilkenny, sulphurous, bovey, jet, etc. These have all their specific differences, and are employed for various purposes, but are all more or less used as fuel. The use of coal for burning purposes was not known to the Romans. In Britain it was discovered about fifty years before the birth of Christ, in Lancashire, not far from where Manchester now stands, but for ages after its discovery, so long as forests abounded, wood continued to be the fuel used for firing. The first public notice of coal is in the reign of Henry the Third, who, in 1272, granted a charter to the town of Newcastle, permitting the inhabitants to dig for coal. It took some centuries more, however, to bring it into common use, as this did not take place till about the first quarter of the 17th century, in the time of Charles I. A few years after the Restoration, we find that about 200,000 children were consumed in London, although several countries possesses mines of coal. The quality of their mineral is, in general, greatly inferior to that of Great Britain, where it is found mostly in undulating districts abounding with valleys, and interspersed with plains of considerable extent. 
It lies usually between the strata of other substances, and rarely in a horizontal position, but with a dip of inclination to one side. Our cut, fig 21, represents a section of coal as it is found in the stratum. End of section 4